Well, in 2005, my wife Becky uh, got on what well, was going on a plane to fly to Virginia to go and be with a friend of hers. And um, she's going through security. So this is 2005, so things were, you know, tighter. I think they're still tight, but they were tighter than even. And uh, as she was going through security, you know, beep, 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 it went off and pulled her little carry-on aside and they said, excuse me, ma'am, but um, do you have a dagger in your, in your carry-on? And Becky said, a dagger? <laughs> no, no, of course not. That's nonsense. So, they, you know, they unzip her, her, her bag and they open it up and start rifling through it, you know, which is not, you know, right in the middle of everybody else, of course, which is fantastic and can't find anything. And they close it back down. Like, are you sure, ma'am? She's like, yes, yes, I've got, I've got no daggers on me, you know, and and then zip the little top front pocket on the, you know, the carry-on and just lift it up and pulls out a dagger. Now, if you know Becky, this is just like a sweet little story, right? You're like, oh, Becky, she's so sweet. TSA didn't think so. Um, <laughs> turns out... Um, when you carry like your tweezers accidentally onto the, like nobody cares, right? But uh, any blade over two inches, I believe it is, is considered a weapon. And this blade was over two inches. Uh, and see, the, the summer before, we had gone to Colorado and, and driven there as a family. And our son, Nathan, who was like 12 or 13 at the time, had, had put this knife that we had bought for him as something he was going out in the woods, you know, to, to play with and like cut some trees up or something like that. And he had left it there. Couldn't find it, had lost it. TSA found it. Um, the front pocket of a carry-on. Of course, the very box, you know, the pocket that you never check for anything, ever. Yeah, it, it was in there. So TSA didn't think that was very interesting. The uh, Clayton County Police that is right there uh, took Becky into a special room. And uh, at one point, the gentleman who was escorting her said, are you ready to spend the night in Clayton County Jail? So it got intense pretty quick. She eventually, after they checked some things out, ran her ID, realized she was no felon at this point and uh, was on her way, but not at this point. And so they ended up letting her get on her flight and she was able to return, but she was charged with possession of a concealed weapon. So now she's in the nursery now. We've cleared her with the police. I just want to say all is well. Y'all who have babies, she's good now. But, but she had to go and appear before, in Clayton County, she had to go and appear before a judge. And um, now, I'm the kind of person that thinks like, okay, wait a minute. Like, if there's just an opportunity to explain yourself, all can be figured out, right? Like, we can work this out together. And so that's kind of where I was at. I said, listen, Beck, I'll go with you. We talked to a lawyer to make sure we weren't fools, you know. But I was like, I'll go with you. And like, when he asks, you know, like, you know, what do you plead, then I'll explain, we get there and, and, and we're sitting there and, and the, the, the judge comes in and suddenly you realize real quickly, like, this is his house. Like, this is his, he's in charge. All the rest of us, like, we answer to him, every one of us. And, and as we're sitting there, he said, listen, to be very, very clear, there's two options for you this morning. I don't want to hear any other words but guilty or not guilty. So you're going to stand up when I call, when they call your name and you're going to say either guilty or not guilty. And I wanted to say and he just made it clear. He said, listen, someone in here, he, he, had my, he read my mail. He's like, someone in here is going to think that you can stand up. I don't want to hear it. I just want to know, are you pleading guilty or not guilty? And we'd been counseled to, to plead guilty by the, by, our, by the lawyer. And so we uh, 
So I, I couldn't stand up and plead on Becky's behalf. I couldn't explain and make it better and say, oh, you don't understand who she is. She, she's great. Like, she would never hurt anybody. And, and it was an accident. And don't you see, like, it's really okay. And so she had to stand up. She had to look at the judge in front of all these people and say, guilty. Guilty. They... Uh, they had a program at, in Clayton County that had just started just a few months before by a woman who actually was a believer and on her way to becoming a lawyer herself. And, and this program was for first-time offenders, which at this point, Becky was a first-time offender. She still is. Um, and and just, just to clarify, just to clarify. Uh, and, um, but but what, what, what it meant is that if she served a certain amount of community service and took a certain set of classes, that she would have her record expunged. Now, expunged doesn't mean found not guilty. It literally means it's as though it didn't exist, as though it never happened. And so that's the route we took. She took some anger management classes. <laughs> this is so great. She's not here. This is just so good. Some, some uh, like time management classes, such a good class. Anyway, it ended up being this really challenging, but also this really beautiful journey of allowing herself to get her record expunged as she submitted to a process and trust the judge who said, at the end, there will be nothing left on your record. And that's where she's at. And that's where she sits today. Now, we're relatively convinced that someone knows, right? I mean, you only get one shot at this. So someone somewhere knows, but we don't know where that is. And so we're just going to assume it's her old judge. That's the plan. That's what it's like to go into a court. At least that's what it was like to go into Clayton County Court on that day. And for us, what we see in today's passage is in essence another courtroom scene. But in this courtroom scene, Jesus is on the bench. And it's more than a bench, it's a throne. It's a throne of glory. A divine, royal tribunal is what's set before us. That's what we see in verse 31. It says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Notice the words, when. This is coming. Now, not if, when. When he sits on his glorious throne, when the Son of Man comes, he's coming. And when the king returns, when Jesus returns, he will return as a king and he will return in glory. He won't be born in a manger, quietly meek, not this time. When he returns this time, he's coming in glory. To return not, not primarily as a servant, not even as a savior, but as a king. This time he will not be mocked. He will not be spit upon. He will not be crucified. He will not brought, be brought into a tribunal. No, he is the judge. He is the one in front of whom all will stand. He will reign. This time his glory won't be veiled. It will be seen by all. It will be on display for all to see. And all the angels will be with him. Not just a multitude in the skies on a dark night. No, no, all of them are with him. Glory. All authority will be his and it will be plain. He is the king and he will be so in totality. Established on his throne. All things subject to him. This will be this resplendent, awe-consuming moment. 
What do we see in verse 32? It says, before him will be gathered all of the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates a sheep from the goats and he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Before him will be gathered all the nations. Every single person that's ever lived for all times will be present before him. There are no spectators. There's no one in the bleachers. There's no one accompanying folks to see if they can, you know, like argue with the judge. No, no. Everyone stands before the king. Every person is standing. It says that he will separate people one from another. As a, as a shepherd separates sheep from goats, this is no Harry Potter sorting hat where, you know, like you get to go in a good house or another good house. No. Now, this is a clear line of delineation. There's a clear division that's drawn. There's no ambiguity. There's no muddiness about like a third or a fourth way. Instead, no, the sheep are separated to the right, to the place of honor. They're shepherded there. And the goats are swept off to the left, to the place of dishonor. Now, if you were in Palestine at that time, you, you were familiar with this, right? Shepherds would take their sheep out and their goats out, and they were all intermingled throughout the day. But at the evening came, especially in the cooler seasons, what the shepherds all had to do is they had to separate out the goats and the sheep because the goats had to go inside so they didn't get too cold. And, of course, the sheep, you know, they got the wool, so they're good. So that's, that's a regular life experience. People know exactly what that looks like. And he goes through and he chooses, he moves one off and he moves the other out and then he, he herds them all to the barn and leaves the others to be cared for in the field. What we see in this passage, the remainder of this passage is this split between two diametrically opposed scenes. One is incredibly good news. It's a moment of expectation. It's a moment of confirmation. It's this, it's this, it's this scene of, of hope and encouragement and anticipation. And then there's a second scene, a second moment that's diametrically opposed. It's one of tragically bad news, filled with the prospect of dread and sadness, a deeply sobering scene of real calamity. And they're put right next to each other in the same moment before the Lord. So on that day, what will happen is that yours and my identity will be revealed. It will be shown for what it is. We will know without a shadow of a doubt as either blessed sheep or as cursed goats. Either as blessed sheep or cursed goats. Those are the diametrically opposed realities that come when Jesus returns. And so let's look at the blessed sheep first. Verse 34 says, when the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. You recognize those words, come? We talked about it last week, right? It's these words of invitation. It's like, come, all of you, you're blessed by my father. You get to inherit the kingdom. You're speaking to heirs. Only children get to inherit. And he says that it's prepared from the foundations of the world. Now, there's an entire sermon with just that phrase that we're not going to do today. So I recognize it's like fully loaded, lots in there. We're not going to go to the prepared from the foundations of the world other than to say that this is not a retroactive reality. It's not like, well, listen, it looks like you did good, so in you come. 
Now, this is prepared from the foundations of the world. Before time was time, this has been prepared. There's an inheritance. And so, therefore, there's this blessing that is for the heirs. Now, it looks a little bit, if you keep reading, like, like there's a certain set of good works, right? And that, that's what makes you an heir. If you live up to that set, then maybe you're good. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about an inheritance from the father to sons and daughters. It's not earned. You don't lose that privilege. It's not about fulfilling some role as a servant or a slave to aspire to something. No, it's about having a relationship of, with the father as a child. How do you become an heir? How do we become heirs? I mean, it's pretty important. It seems like these are the people that get blessed, blessed by the father. How, how do you become an heir? How do we become heirs? So we're saved in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, to the glory of Christ alone. That's how. Become saved when, you're, when you put your faith in Christ's grace for you and you believe that it's for his sake, for your blessing. In Romans chapter 3, Paul makes this crystal clear. Second half of verse 22, he says, for there is no distinction. He's trying to be really, really clear here. There is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Let's just pause for a second. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, which means that left up to reality, everyone is a goat. Everyone is cursed. That's what that reality says. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's no other option, but there's good news. Heirs are made and are justified by the grace, by his grace as a gift Inheritance is a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, which is an atoning sacrifice, which God put forward as an atoning sacrifice by his blood to be received by faith, not by the work, by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Listen, verse 26. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What Paul's trying to tell us there is like, there was no way for you to justify yourself. So he had to not only be just in order for justice to reign and God to be God, but he became the justifier, the one who gave you a justification by which you can live. And in this case, be heir with Christ by faith. The ESV Study Bible commentator says that the righteous will inherit the kingdom in this passage, not because of the compassionate works that they have done, but because their righteousness comes from their transformed hearts in response to Jesus' proclamation of the kingdom as evidenced by their compassion for the least of these. In other words, we are not blessed, loved ones, because of our good works. We are blessed unto our good works. It's not causal, it's evidential. This is how you know, not how you get it. So what's the evidence that the heirs display? If you're an heir, what do you look like? How, what do you show? 
Verse 35, the evidence, it's evidenced by compassion. For I was hungry, Jesus said, and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. If you're a son and if you're a daughter, if you've been brought in, and you're conformed to the image of Jesus. You look like your older brother. And just as Christ's miracles, when he was, I mean, if you've been reading through Matthew now to Mark, his miracles right and left. He's, all these miracles are, they're, they're a signal, they're, they're a manifestation of the fact that he is God himself. And so, so also our deeds, our works authenticate, they verify the confession that we say that we hold. They, they prove it. They say, see, look, because this is true in you, this is true of you. Martin Luther was quoted as saying, we are saved by grace alone through faith alone, but faith that saves is never alone. So there is this evidenced compassion and we are I find oftentimes, I find this in me above, but we're, we're, we're masters of hypothetical compassion. Like if something, if something big comes up, like I'm there. You know, if like, you know, like 9-11 happened and like everyone rallied, right? Big, big moments happened even when, when COVID started. Like everyone rallies around the big moments. But what's fascinating about what Jesus is pointing to here when he, when he talks about what the evidence of it is, is it's very ordinary. It's invisible almost. It's feeding, it's clothing, it's, it's being present in the, in the messy, in the time-consuming, in the needy. It's, it's basic, ordinary Christian living. And so the question answered is by, by, by the sheep. They say, well, when? When did we see you? When did we see you naked? When did we see you hungry? When did we see you thirsty? When did we see you a stranger or in prison? And Jesus answers them in verse 40. He says, and the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of these, as you did to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. So who, who's the least of these? Now, traditionally, this has been maybe taught or, or kind of run through as the idea of like the least of these, hey, these are everyone who's in need of any kind. But that's actually not what is Jesus is saying here. Now, there's plenty of places in the scriptures, to be clear, that the scriptures say we take care of people in need. We fight for the poor, for those who don't have a voice. Like, that's across the scriptures, no doubt. But here, that's not what Jesus is talking about. Who are the least of these? He says they're my brothers. Well, who are the brothers? Well, if we go to Matthew chapter 12, we see Jesus answering that very question, which is super helpful. If you remember, his mother and his brothers had come to seize hold of him because they thought he was crazy. And so they said, hey, your mom and your brothers are outside. And Jesus says this in verse 48 of Matthew 12. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Well, that's, that's helpful. That's exactly what we're asking. And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So who's the least of these? My brother. Who's my brother? The disciples. Those who, who are disciples? Those who do the will of my Father. 
These are the disciples. So who are the least of these? This is the least of the disciples, those who are carrying the message of the kingdom into the world, those who are living the message of the kingdom in the world, the way into the degree in which you love them, not just the poor in general, not just the suffering in general, not just the naked and in prison in general, here referring to the believers that are experiencing suffering and pain and loss and confirming their faith by what we do to them, by what we do to one another, with and for one another. Don't miss this. I think this is pivotal. Jesus is associating himself with the least. And, and let's, be, let's be aware here. This is not Jesus associating himself as he's meek. This is Jesus, the king, saying, I am associating myself with the least of these, the least important, the least impressive amongst you. Jesus associates himself with the least, which is why when on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, when, when, when Jesus appears to Saul, he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my church? No. Why are you persecuting my disciples? No. He says, why are you persecuting me? Was Saul persecuting Jesus? No. And yes, because Jesus associates himself with his people, with the least of these so what kind of king is this who returns to judge the world? Well, he's one that when they suffer, he suffers. When you have pain, he has pain. He's one that when you bless them, he is blessed. When you're cared for, he is cared for. He associates himself with you. Compassion is central to the life of a believer. We know this. Jesus loves the person next to you as much as he loves you. Jesus loves the person next to you as much as he loves you. I know you're the most important person in your life, but, but he loves the person next to you as much as he loves you. And Jesus is linking his own well-being with the wellness and well-being of others. Which is why a person with a changed heart, someone who says, Lord, I love you, is someone who has a changed life demonstrated externally. True disciples of Jesus don't only love Christ, they love Jesus' people. And what's great news is we have all kinds of awesome special opportunity to do that during these difficult days. Because one thing that's evident in the news, on social media, in our families, is that we are not always loving God's people well. We're not treating one another with compassion. We're not extending grace. We're not with people that we don't understand or that we don't agree with. You're not, we're not living out this kind of compassion. That's precisely what Jesus says is the mark of the people who are heirs of the kingdom. So loved ones, this is what the heirs of the kingdom do. This is how we relate to one another. We look at the way Jesus is saying, I'm, I'm looking at the way in which you treat my disciples as a direct implication of how you treat me, of how you see me, of how you relate to me. 
which does mean if you walk away, and, and many have, and particularly in the last several years, deconstructing their faith, walking away from Christianity, saying, listen, I'm fine with Jesus, but like, I can't stand the church. And I just want to say, Jesus is not okay with that. Not because the church isn't messy. The church is messy. And I'm, I mean, not ours, but other churches are messy. No, we're messy. Like, we're messy people. Like, we're broken. We exhibit selfishness. Of course we do. But the way in which we work through that and move towards one another in the midst of it is the mark. The least of these, my brother, the most unimpressive amongst us, the messiest, you know, the kind of person who says a thing they shouldn't say at the wrong possible moment and embarrasses you. Yeah, that person. As we move towards these people with grace and compassion, the Lord says, ha, oh, you... You love me. You, you know me. You, you're acting like an heir. You, you're a son. You're a brother of Christ, of course, the king says. It's a litmus test. If you want to know what your relationship with God and what Jesus is like this way, look at the way in which you're relating and loving the people that he's given you as brothers and sisters, which is why Jesus famously said that the world is going to know that you're my disciple and that you have love one for another that you're going to somehow be able to overlook all the weird, messy, broken stuff in each other in a way that allows you to move towards one another in love and courage and taking risks with one another. That's what it's going to look like. And it's going to be so beautiful that they're going to be like, I don't know about these, but there's something special about them. They say they're disciples of Jesus. But the other thing that, point, that Jesus points out in this is that, is that he sees it all. Loved ones, like, there is no unseen good work. There's no thing that you're going to do, visible, or, and moms, this may be super helpful today. There's no thing that you're going to be doing in the next week, in the next month, after everyone's forgotten Mother's Day, and that is not going to be seen by the Lord. He doesn't take in himself as having been done to him. I just wonder, some of us, like, we love the idea of Jesus, but we have a hard time seeing it play itself out in how we relate to one another. And I just want to say that's where it lives. And he sees and he experiences it as delight, as care. It impacts him. Loved ones, you can impact the heart of God. Everyone will be judged. But I think the question that comes, and this is pivotal, is when you imagine walking into a courtroom, like what's the look going to be on the judge's face? This is pivotal for how you're reading the Gospels, by the way. Like what's, what's the tone in Jesus' voice? What's the look on his face as he's talking to his disciples, as he's taking on the Pharisees, as he's speaking parables like this, not parables, as he's speaking messages and, and telling stories of the reality of what is to come like this? Like what is the look on his face? What do the sheep see on that day? If Matthew 25, 23 is an indication, they see a friend. This is just a few verses earlier talking about the, the, the parable of the talents. And it says, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful and little. I will set you over much, and that has to do with proportionality, but listen to the next line. Enter into the joy of your master. Like, loved ones, one, one of the amazing things about this passage, and you may be someone who's, going, who's wrestled with, like, am I goat? Am I sheep? 
We said there's no delineation. There's no third category. Am I go to my sheep? Have I done enough? If I look at this list, have I, when was the last time I fed someone who was hungry? Like I, I haven't visited anybody in prison my whole life. If you feel fear, again, these are evidences of, they're not the earned, accrued way of becoming an heir. No, the, the look of Jesus upon us is one of a friend. He's the best of friends. You see, he's the judge who was also the savior. And because he was the savior, you have a savior who was your judge, who is your judge. Just imagine you, Becky and I had walked into that Clayton County courtroom and it had been one of our closest friends, Steve Heimler, sitting up on the bench there. Looks so good in your robes too. I know you would. How would that have affected our disposition? Like, I know Steve is for me. Like, he, he, would, he would do almost anything for me. I know he loves Becky. Like, he, he, he would fight for us, for what is good and just and right and true. And that's who's on the throne, loved ones. He's a father. He's an, and you're his heir. You belong to him. He's kindly disposed to you. When Jesus returns... And he judges the sheep, it will be a day of joy. Of joy, of celebration, of confirmation, of you, you saw that, you, you knew this. And it will also be a day of sorrow. For there is a curse for the goats. Verse 41, the passage shifts and it says, Then he, the king, will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. This is a moment of just pronounced gravity. This is a solemn accounting before the Lord's. I think this is one of the hardest things that comes from the lips of Jesus and honestly, I think if they'd come from anyone else, we would maybe try to figure our way around them, but it's the Lord who said it. It's a separation. And, and, and in a culture of pluralism, right, which would say, hey, listen, this way or this way or this way is fine. All it's going to work out because it's about you and what works for you. This flies straight in its face. We're allergic to exclusion, one author said. I'm like, yeah, that sounds about right. We're allergic to excluding anyone. So this is, I mean, this is, there is no greater exclusion than what's described in these verses. Some are getting the new heaven and new earth, and others are getting everlasting misery in hell. I don't know if there's anything that goes more against the grain of my own heart and soul let alone of those around us than these assumptions and against my own sensitivities. I think if we're honest, we're uncomfortable with God's ultimate authority and sovereignty. We're just uncomfortable with it. The fact that there's no, no court of appeals, that, that on that day, like I wanted to, no one gets to jump in and say, actually, you don't understand, Lord, there's some mitigating circumstances. We will all stand by ourselves before the Lord according to what we have done that matches who we are because of what he's done for us. I'm uncomfortable with this passage. Not because I don't think it's true, because it's tragic. 
I'm uncomfortable because my cultural context is your cultural context. And I want to believe there's got to be a way, right? There's got to be some kind of like loophole somewhere. This is unpleasant. And if it's not unpleasant to you, then you're not really thinking about it. The day of judgment when Jesus comes with his throne, I think we, we find ourselves, many of us have worked our mind and heart around the idea that like it'd be, it's easier to get through security, security at the airport than it is to get past God, to just explain to him what could be done. If you think about you know, the long-lasting humor cartoons about St. Peter who's going to kind of wink at you, you know, and he's maybe, I don't know, in some cartoons half drunk at the gates of hell. And he's like, ah, come on in, guys. It doesn't matter. Like, that's the picture we have. That's not the picture that Jesus draws here. It's distinct. We have this sense of like, oh, you need to get to go to heaven, if there is a heaven, is to just die. You're, you're probably good enough. You're not Hitler after all, which is what we all say. But what Jesus is saying is that these goats, these people are sentenced away to a real place a place of torment with the company of those you don't want to keep, the devil and his angels. Hell is right here in this passage, and, and, it, and it simply can't be camouflaged. It can't be ridden over. It can't be pretended. It's final, and it's separation. And it's tempting. I can't tell you. It's tempting to be. There's different, you know, doctrines around things like, hey, annihilation, you know, that like after a while, like the soul just ceased to exist and, and like, that's how God has compassion on people. It just gets really hard when Jesus says this. I'd love to work around that. But it's hard to when he says that there's going to be eternal, the same word that he uses for eternal life. So either there is eternal punishment or there's not, and there is eternal life or there's not eternal punishment and therefore there's not eternal life. You can't have one without the other. Otherwise, the, the sentences don't make sense. And I think the thing is, it, it's, eternal seems so detestable. It seems so uncomfortable. Are you uncomfortable? I mean, it's uncomfortable to even think about. But I think it's tempting, as tempting as it might be, to, to, to come up with something else, some other idea, some other option that's more plausible to us. We do no one a favor by pretending that this isn't the reality. And I think the most significant thing, and this is the part that like, like lifts me back up and goes, okay, Lord, is that Jesus talks about it more than anybody else. Like the word for hell, you know, Gehenna, like it's used 12 times in the New Testament. Jesus uses it 11. Like it's not, you can't just throw this on the Apostle Paul. You can't put it on the, on the guys that followed him. Like this is the account of what he said. And it's rough. What's scandalous is that Jesus rejects them, as it seems, for what they haven't done. But as we just saw, it's not what they haven't done. It's that they haven't been a part of the community of people. They rejected Jesus by rejecting the people who carried his message. They rejected Jesus by rejecting the people, by not caring for, by not entering into the lives of, by not being part of those who had eternal life, who were heirs because of Christ alone, through faith alone. 
And so unlike sons, they are treated like slaves who've rebelled. They're expelled. They're removed from the presence of the Lord, from the presence of Jesus and from the loving presence of his father. The word cursed is used. Just to talk about, that's what Jesus experienced on the cross, right? That he was, a, he became, Paul says, a curse for us which means that the curse that belongs to us went on him. And what this is saying is that Jesus is saying, if I don't take the curse for you, it remains on you. God does not delight in the death of the wicked. He says so. Read in Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11, he says, so to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But this is what his heart is, okay, listen. But that the wicked turn from his way and live. And listen to the call, listen to the, the plea. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? The apostle Peter will echo this when he says in, in uh, chapter 3 of Second Peter, he says, the Lord is not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Like that's the heart of God. He's saying, he's saying come to turn. That's what he's saying today, but on that day he will not say turn, which is why today really, really matters because there are two judgments there are two destinies, eternal life and eternal death. And what, what the Lord is imploring you today is choose eternal life. Jesus in John chapter 3 will say, what is eternal life? That you know me. Do you know him? This is maybe one of the most important moments for those of you who are not sure where you are with God, if you're just exploring Christianity, if you're trying to just get a, a sense of what it might look like, or if maybe you're just like really a good man, a good woman who does good things and you're kind, and you're like, I take care of people, I give money to what matters. Like, listen, you, you do not want to find yourself at the end, as Jesus says in, in, in Matthew chapter um, Chapter 7, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of flawlessness. You see, it's not, it's not enough to do good church things, to do good religious things, to do good philanthropic things. It's to know him. It's, it's to rest and rely on the expungement of your case, that your sentence must be taken care of. It must be removed that you may be able to have communion with God. And if you belong to Jesus, that's what you have today. Your case has been expunged. Your sentence is gone. But if that's not the case for you, then 
before you leave today, before you put your head on the pillow tonight, like know that the God who chases after you by sending his son to die for you is beckoning you, come while you can come. Repent while you can repent. Turn to me, turn your life over to me that you may live. This morning, if you belong to him, I hope you hear him saying, you get to come. The holy God saying to those of us sinners but by him, come. Come, says the Savior, because I paid for you. I was both just and the justifier of those who would have faith. Loved ones, we come into an everlasting, never-ending relationship with the Father as heirs, as sons and daughters of God through Jesus. And, and the meal that we take each week is, is meant to remind us of that. It's meant to remind us that wherever you came, what kind of, whatever kind of orphan or lost you found yourself in during this week, as you came back to this moment, you get to meal. You get to have supper with him and be reminded that you are son and you are daughter to him. And therefore, you have nothing to fear. You get to anticipate. You could pray with the apostle John, come, Lord Jesus, come today. If you know him, beloved, you should be like, hey, come today. Let's, let's do this. Like, I want to be with you. I want to know, see you face to face. Bring your justice upon the earth. Why? Because we're not worried about the justice falling on us. It fell on him, and that's exactly what the table reminds us of. And so as we take these elements, we're remembering what Jesus did on the night that he was betrayed. Matthew chapter 26 that we just read this week says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples. And he said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and he said, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And listen, I tell you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it anew with you in the kingdom, in my Father's kingdom. See, this is a meal of remembrance, and it's a meal of anticipation. Because after the, after the king says, come, enter, inherit, we have a meal with him, the wedding feast of the lamb. And that's the meal that Jesus is anticipating to drink and eat with you and me. And for all those that belong to him. Do you belong to him today? I hope you do. Let's pray. Father, if you had not made a way, there would be no way. We all like sheep have gone away, each of us to his own way. But the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Lord, we have no hope but through you. And now because of you, we have hope. And we have peace, peace with God and peace with ourselves. And now we have anticipation of everlasting peace and joy with you in heaven. And so, Lord, we anticipate that day. Come, Lord Jesus, we pray. And as we take these elements, Lord, would you drive deep into our hearts the remembrance that we belong to you, that we are heirs by covenant because of what you've done. And, Lord, then would you send us out? Would you help us to live in a way that the kind of compassion that you describe in these verses would, would just pour out of us, that we're looking for the ways in which each other are poor and in need, 
the ways in which we're alone and in, in need of care and sustaining, isolated and put away, tangible ways in which prisoners need us, poor need us, that we may live this out in front of those that are longing for a real hope. So we pray, Lord, would you make us these kinds of people through the power of your spirit? We are willing. Would you do it in us, we pray, that we may participate in your kingdom. To the praise and glory of Jesus, our Savior, we pray. Amen. Well, if you belong to Jesus, then this meal, this communion meal is for you. So take the body of Christ broken and his blood shed for you in your own time.